If you would, please go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and be in verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers. If you don't have a Bible, please grab the Black Pew Bible in front of you, and you should be able to find it there. All right, let's go to the Lord. Let's ask him for help. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for saving us and bringing us to a place where we might actually delight to hear your word. And thank you for anyone in here who does not belong to you who gets to sit under your word this morning. Lord, none of this counts if you're not in it. So we ask for your help. Would you powerfully open our eyes to the truth and cause us to delight in it, to submit ourselves to your word, to be changed, to trust the gospel, and to be more like Jesus. Father, I cannot do this in my own strength, so I ask for your help, and we ask for your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a Greek king named Midas. And he used to spend all day counting all of his gold coins and obsessing over all of his treasures. He loved money. And the main thing that was on his mind was getting more money. Well, one day, the Greek god Dionysus granted the king a wish. So he sees the opportunity, and he said, I want everything that I touch to turn to gold. And Dionysus warned him, said, this is only going to lead to despair. Do not make this wish. But King Midas insisted. And so the next day, he woke up, and he was eager to test out his new power. And so he extended his arm, and he touched a small table, and immediately it turned into gold. So he jumped up with excitement, and then he touched a chair, and he, he touched the carpet, and he touched the tub, and he started running around all over his palace, touching everything. And to his excitement and joy, gold was everywhere. He couldn't believe his good fortune. So finally, he sat down, exhausted from all of his excitement. He decided he was going to have some breakfast. He took a rose in his hand to smell the fragrance, and the rose turned to gold, and he put it down, a little bit shocked. And he went to grab a glass of water, and then when you know, the glass of water turned to gold, and oh no, this it dawned on him. Despair came across his face. He began to worry. In that moment, his beloved daughter came into the room and she saw that he was upset and she ran to him and gave him a big hug and she was turned into a golden statue. The king did not heed the warning and because of his greed, his insatiable desire for more and more riches, his life was ruined. Brothers and sisters, the desire for riches destroys. This timeless truth isn't just found in bedtime stories, but it is also found in the Bible. In our text this morning, God warns us that the love of money and the pursuit of riches can even lead us to hell. So I can already hear the objections coming up in your mind. But I'm not greedy like King Midas. I would never be so foolish. But, but money itself isn't a bad thing. Being rich isn't a sin. Maybe you're saying, aren't we supposed to be good stewards of our treasures? 
I'm just trying to be wise with my money. That's, that's all. Doesn't the Bible say it's the love of money, not money itself, that is the root of all kinds of evil? Maybe you're saying, I'm not greedy. I just want to make a lot of money so I can be generous. Or I don't have a lot of money, so this sermon must not be for me. Well, I'm going to deal with some, not all, of these objections as we go. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to lower your defenses. I want you to assume that your relationship with money is not perfect. And I want you to assume that it is possible, even likely, that whether you're wealthy or poor, that you might be plagued with the temptation to desire to be rich. The Bible does say some positive things about money, but that's not what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to focus on what the Bible focuses on throughout, which is this. It is warning. Warning. If, if God is pointing behind you and he's saying, watch out, there's a lion that's about to get you, you're not going to look at God and say, hey, I got it. It's cool. Everybody calm down. What you're going to do if God is pointing behind you saying, watch out, is you're going to watch out. So this morning, we're going to heed the warning and watch out. And the warning is this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But discontentment leads to destruction. I'll say it again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But discontentment leads to destruction. So let's read the text together. 1 Timothy 6. Starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and totally sufficient word. Amen? Here's your outline. I have two points for you this morning. Point number one, discontentment and destruction. Point number two, contentment and and godliness. We're going to take the second half of this passage first. Point one, discontentment and destruction. Look at verse nine again. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who desire to be rich fall or trip into a pool of ruin and destruction. That's what he's saying. So imagine someone is chasing after some kind of object that's just constantly just out of reach. And as they're chasing after this big, shiny, floating object, they don't see that they're about to hurl themselves right off of an edge into a pit filled with burning lava. That's what they're doing. That's the word picture. Now here's what it actually means. When we pursue worldly riches, we do dumb and dangerous things. Paul breaks it down in three ways, and they're very related to one another. He says, chasing riches leads you into temptation. The desire for more money creates the environment 
for all kinds of sin to flourish. It's the Trojan horse that gets into our heart and opens up the floodgates so that all kinds of sin can rush in. Before you know it, if you desire a little bit of wealth, it's led you into full-on greed. You've grown stingier, less generous towards your church. It's began to create this sinful anxiety as you start to think more and more about your bank account. You find yourself telling white lies in your taxes that eventually grow into bold-faced lies. A little bit of success begins to puff you up, and you start looking around and seeing your neighbor and thinking, yeah, I do have nicer things than them. I am better than them. Chasing riches allows all kinds of temptations to flare up. Paul also says, chasing riches leads you into a snare set by the devil. This chasing that is leading you into all kinds of sin, it's not just one big cosmic accident. This isn't a coincidence. Somebody is plotting against you, and that somebody is the devil. He's trying to get you to fix your eyes on something to distract you while he's setting the bear trap, while he's covering the the pit of spikes with all the leaves. And we know that one of the best ways to win a battle is to know what the enemy is trying to do. Well, that's it. Guys, riches are a trap. It is a snare set by the devil. The hook is baited. Therefore, do not go for it, is what Paul is telling us. Thirdly, he says that chasing riches stirs up desires in you that are senseless and harmful. And how many times have we seen exactly that? Multimillionaires will start inside trading for chump change, and they're risking going to prison for decades. It's crazy. It's senseless, and it's harmful. An otherwise normal person will point a gun at somebody for five bucks. The lottery proves year in and year out that people are willing to waste millions and millions of dollars on a total pipe dream. We will work way more hours than we should when we know that it is bad for us and our families in order to get the bread. We'll hold back on giving to the needy. We'll hold back on giving to the church in order to save up for expensive stuff that we're not even going to use. We might become like those that Paul describes in verse 10, who through the craving of riches have even wandered away from the faith. And we wouldn't be the first to do it. Jesus warns us, you cannot have two masters. You can have me, or you can have the God of money. And people have been known to choose the God of money over Jesus. Could it not be so that you might be like Judas and sell Jesus out for 70 pieces of silver? Is it possible that that you and I could be like the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus sad, who was holding out eternal life? He walked away sad. Why? Because he had so many possessions. He couldn't make the exchange. This kind of stuff happens all of the time. The love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. Dangerous evils that destroy people. Just to acquire more money, people have been known to lie and cheat and murder and steal, practice sexual immorality and disobey parents, backstab friends, throw away your families, 
completely stunt your spiritual growth? Why? What do you get in return? Only to be pierced by a spear of many pangs. Pangs that include apostasy and abandoning Christ himself. Are you and I so different from the rest of mankind? Are we not susceptible to the same deceits, the same dangers? So here's some diagnostic questions for us this morning to think through, to really look into our heart and ask the Lord to help us see, like, God, is, is this me? Are you say, does this reveal something in my heart that maybe I am at risk of desiring worldly riches? Are you jealous of your neighbor? Do you covet the new car that they just got? You know, are you, are you looking at all the designer stuff that they get to buy for their baby and thinking, man, I wish I had enough money to buy all that cool stuff? Do you constantly feel like you're behind your peers? Like, like you look at your neighbor's possessions and you're thinking, I'm losing the rat race. I've got to catch up. What about your social media? Is your feed full of rich celebrity, celebrities that you've never met? Why is that, you think? What is your Facebook algorithm saying about your heart and what you really are chasing? Do you lurk on other people's pages just dreaming about how happy you would be if you had what they had? What about this? Do you trust in money for security? How often do you stare at the ceiling in the middle of the night thinking about your savings account again? Are you constantly doing the math on the same numbers over and over? In an emergency, where does your heart turn first? Does it turn to prayer and dependence on God? Or does it turn to cost and counting what you have to see if you can take care of it? Is your savings account unusually large just in case? What might these things be saying about where you actually take refuge during times of trouble? Are you a stingy giver? The New Testament doesn't teach us about a tithe. However, for most people, the mental number that we start at for giving is 10%. So, simple question. Are you giving less than 10%? And if you are, why might that be? The New Testament teaches something even more extreme. It teaches that we are to be generous and cheerful givers. Those, those are the qualities of our giving. So I ask you, are you generous? Or do you just give just enough to stave off the guilt? Are you cheerful? Or are you begrudging whenever you give? Just like, I'm doing this, just getting God off my back, doing the thing that I'm supposed to do, that's it. God, I wish I didn't have to do it. Do you only give out of your abundance? I'm going to be generous and radical and give lots of money, but first I've got to make sure that I have all the stuff that I want, and then whatever's left over I'll, I'll be super generous with. Well, that's, that's not generosity. Do you make sure that your giving doesn't actually get in the way of what you really want? There's this idea of giving until it hurts. Do you ever give until it hurts? If not, why might that be? Moving outside the church, what is your generosity like? Are you eager to be generous towards your neighbors and towards your family? Do you want to buy meals for other people? Does it, does it bring you joy 
Or do you see this kind of giving as being bad for your bottom line? Jesus says that it is better to give than to receive. Well, if, if you were to allow someone to really examine your life, get all nosy and all of the numbers, would your life prove that that is true, that you stand on that fact, that when Jesus says it is better to give to receive, it's reflected in your life? Is that true of you? Here's another one. Are you willing to acquire money through sin? Pretty simple. You know, do you cheat on your taxes? Do you not claim everything you're supposed to claim? Because the government will never find out. Will you steal things or time from your employer? Do you fall for get-rich-quick schemes? Do you play the lottery? Are you inclined to gamble? Here's another, another one that probably hits a lot of us. Are you working too much? It's so easy to justify. Immediately, your, your brain is filled with all the good reasons why I work. And that's, that's true, and there's the sermon for that. But what about maybe a bad reason you're working too much? If the amount you work is bad for your marriage, bad for your relationship, bad for your kids, bad for your relationship with fellow church members, bad for your health, and you know that the, the reason you're excusing that is because you got to get that overtime, you got to get that money, and there's so many things you want to do with all of your wealth. That's not a worthwhile exchange. Isn't it worth making the change, reprioritizing some things? Is it possible that the reason you don't have time for discipleship and fellowship and evangelism is because you've prioritized using your time and talent to make money instead? Are you constantly buying stuff you don't need? In order to get more stuff, you need more money. So do you strive to keep the funds coming in because you have to buy the next thing? Is your relationship with Amazon like a patient hooked up to an IV? You just, you just got to keep the drip of stuff coming so that you can feel stable. It's a scary way to face this reality. Pull up some bank statements and look at your discretionary spending. Look and see. Where is my money going month after month? What percentage of my budget goes towards eating out and gadgets and shiny toys and clothes and house projects? God gives you the power to get wealth. It comes from Him. Are you spending most of it on yourself? What might that say to you about your desire for riches? Finally, what would happen if you lost it all today? How big of an emotional hit would you take Did you cry yourself to sleep that night? Maybe a few nights? Maybe never recover? Would you be angry at God? Would you just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, redouble your efforts? I'm going to go get all that wealth back. I'm going to put everything else in the back burner. What if you knew that you were going to be dirt poor for the next 50 years? What would you do? What if you knew that your family was going to have to scrape by for the rest of your life. How would that affect your relationship with Christ? Would you rejoice in him? Would you continue to be faithful? Would you, consider, would you continue to consider everything as loss because of the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? Would you stay motivated and live for Jesus? Or would your world crumble? And would you think, what is the point of all this if I can't have any money and any stuff? I don't want to suffer like that. I don't want to live like that. 
What might that say about which God you serve? The God of money or the Lord? Jesus warns us. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? And the answer, of course, is that gaining the world at the cost of your soul is not gain at all. It is unimaginable loss. So be warned, brothers and sisters. Hear this. A little bit of compromise now and chasing after the world's riches might lead you headlong into a pit that you cannot get out of. And you would not be the first. So examine your hearts. Look out for the devil's traps. And pray that God would search you. And that he would set you on the path of everlasting life. Because there is another way than the pursuit of wealth. A much, much better way. And we can find true gain. A wealth that is far greater than all of these worldly riches. That comes with none of the baggage that we just discussed. And that's where we're going to turn next. I hope you want this wealth. Point number two. Contentment and godliness. Contentment and godliness. So this is probably going to surprise you. It's going to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth right now. Here it is. In one sense, the desire to be rich is a good thing. In fact, it's a totally good thing that is hardwired into our nature for a reason. Ever wondered about that? Why does everybody want riches? God made you that way. So let me walk you through this in the Bible and explain what I mean. Adam and Eve had dominion over the whole earth. Every every natural resource, every animal, everything you could ever need or ever want, it was theirs. And the garden was a typology of heaven. And we actually find there that it was even full of gold and other precious metals. Maybe you've missed that. That that part of Genesis chapter 2 that we always skip actually talks about this. Here's what it says. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. We're supposed to read that and be like, man... Adam and Eve have it made. They have everything they could ever want, and they even have all these precious metals. Like, I want that kind of setup. Think about Abraham. Part of God's covenant with Abraham is that he was going to receive a promised land. We understand today that land is associated with some wealth, but you've got to understand that in his time, and during an agricultural society, land essentially was wealth. Translation God promised Abraham lots and lots of money for him and his offspring. And that was something that Abraham rightly got really excited about. He's like, awesome, I want land. And the Israelites, eventually, they did inherit the promised land. And this promised land, again, is a typology of heaven. Now, this promised land, was it barren? Was it just a big box of sand? No, it was flowing with milk and honey. It was the picture of abundance and plenty. The grapevines were so fruitful and so plentiful that people had to carry them on a big stick between them just to move them around. That was the idea. These descriptions of the promised land to the Israelites were supposed to get them salivating. They're supposed to be giddy, like, I want that promised land. I want all of that wealth and bounty. 
Just listen to the covenantal blessings from Deuteronomy 28. I just picked out a few that focus on our topic here. Moses writing uh, and, and telling the Israelites before they go into the promised land, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground. The Lord will open up to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the works of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. Again, all of these material blessings are supposed to be exciting to the Israelites. They should want these things. It's supposed to motivate their obedience. Now, on the other side, if you look at the curses, many of the covenantal curses were saying, you're going to be broke. You're going to have poverty, to which the Israelites are supposed to say, I don't want poverty, therefore I'm not going to disobey you. I want riches, therefore I will obey you. The logic was very sound. Now take the Proverbs. The Proverbs are full of wisdom about how to earn and keep and use money. And what do we find? We find that foolishness is associated with poverty and wealth is associated with wisdom. What's the principle? What's, what's the Proverbs getting at over and over again? It's this, that fools are going to miss out on true gain and that the wise will obtain it to their delight. Okay, then we come to Jesus. Surely he's going to mess all this up, right? Hmm. No, he doesn't. Jesus is not anti-wealth, at least not in the, in, in the sense that you might think. Jesus created us to pursue treasures and riches. Only he reorients what treasures and riches really are. He explains that the kingdom of heaven and God himself are the fulfillment of all the treasures in the Old Testament. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. Go, sell everything you own and buy that field. You're not supposed to hear that and say, oh, I don't want treasure, Jesus. I, I, I'm pious. I'm very religious. No, you're supposed to want it. What does he mean? It means go sell everything you own so that you can buy the, the greatest treasure, the kingdom of heaven. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found the best pearl, he sold everything and bought it. What's the message? Exchange worldly riches, which are useless, for a more valuable treasure, namely the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says elsewhere, if you love treasure, then store up your treasure in heaven, and I'm going to keep it safe for you. No robbers can get to it. No moths will destroy it. Let me have it. Entrust it to me. Jesus tells Peter, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. 
Point being, Jesus did not come saying, follow me and I'll make you a prince of paupers in the dilapidated kingdom of my father. It's not what he said. No, he came to adopt sinners so that we might become children of God and that we might inherit an unimaginable inheritance, an eternal inheritance that comes from God who owns all the riches of the universe and some. Treasure, treasure that makes Warren Buffett look like he is broke, is awaiting us in heaven. And you're supposed to want it so badly that you would give up anything and everything, all worldly treasure, just so you can have it. The solution to our desire desire for worldly riches is not to not desire riches, it's to desire the right riches. Listen to how John describes it, uh, part of the city of God in Revelation. He says, The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, and he goes all the way through 12 different jewels. And he says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates was made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. That is so much wealth. And you are made to want it. But of course, the symbols of this wealth, they're not really the reward. They are adorning the real reward, the better thing, the greatest treasure of all is fixed right in the frame of all of these riches, and it is this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God is the treasure. God loves treasure. He's got a lot of it. And he's holding it out to you and he's saying, I want you to be filthy rich. I want you to find your treasure in me. The problem isn't the pursuit of wealth. It's the pursuit of the wrong wealth. And if you pursue the fleeting, fake, worthless riches of this world, you're going to get nothing at best. And at worst, you're going to be like the rich man who can't get into heaven. You'll be as, it'll be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, Jesus says. But if you pursue the riches of heaven, you will be rich indeed, and you will be happy. Therefore, we fight the desire for worldly riches with a desire for heavenly riches. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that in our lives right now? Well, one vital way that we do that is we pursue the, the way that we pursue the riches of heaven is by pursuing godliness with contentment. Look at verse 6 with me. Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So first, let's, let's look at that word, godliness. It's one of those words that we throw around a lot, but we haven't really de- defined very carefully. So what does it actually mean? Oftentimes we'll use it as a synonym for holiness, but that's not exactly right. It's, they're related, but they're not synonyms. A better synonym would be Piety. But that's the word that we don't use, so that doesn't really help either. So, here's a pocket-sized definition for you. Godliness is a Godward devotion leading to godly deeds. A godly devotion leading to godly deeds. Godliness has to do with both our emotions and our actions. So in that way, it's similar to the word love, right? We know that love is something that happens at a heart level, 
that then expresses itself externally. I love my wife. That means I care deeply about her. That means that she is the center of my thought life. She's my most central desire. But it doesn't stop there. I have to live it out. This love moves me to do the dishes and to buy her flowers and to go on long walks and listen to her without distraction. All things that I need to do more of. But that's love expressing itself. Well, in the same way, godliness is internal and external. It's a Godward devotion in the heart that leads to godly deeds in the world. It's really a simple term. Godliness is essentially the basic building blocks of Christianity. This is, this is Christianity 101. And Paul is saying that gain comes through godliness, through loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then through following him in obedience. Do that, and you're going to have gain, he says. Now, in the preceding verses, there's a different kind of gain that he's trying to counter. Paul warns Timothy about these false teachers who are pursuing uh, gain, but it's financial gain, and they're pursuing it through godliness. So how does that work? What were they doing? Well, they act all devoted and all religious, and they show up teaching all this cool, novel stuff that makes them look super holy, and then they're hoping it'll pay off for them. They don't care about the heavenly payoff. They mean like they want it to pay off for them now. It's going to give them prestige, and it's going to give them positions of power, and it's going to give them all kinds of money, influence in the church. All of this comes about not because they're genuinely godly, but it's just it's a big show. It's, it's the, they pretend godliness so they can get towards their actual end, which is money. So, obviously, godliness as a means for money like that, is not what Paul is asking us to pursue. He wants to pursue something better, and it's this. Godliness, genuine godliness, with contentment, is true gain. Okay, so now we've added another word here. We got godliness. Paul says we need to augment our godliness with contentment. Well, what is contentment? very interesting the the greek word here for contentment is actually self-sufficiency or independence like that should sound really funny to us let me read it like that godliness with self-sufficiency is gain is, is paul like telling us that godliness plus pulling yourself up by your bootstraps like that's gain you know is he saying something like god helps those who help themselves is that it no, that's, that's, we know that's, that, that's not what he's talking about. So it's important to recognize some background here. Paul is writing into a Greek context. And there's all these philosophers, and these, the philosophers of the day, they were preaching a similar-sounding message about contentment. And basically it had to do with this, willpower. <laughs> it had nothing to do with God. If I can wrestle my desires into submission, if I can take the right perspective on life, then I'm going to find contentment contentment in all circumstances and they're half right you know a lot of our problems actually come because we don't have the right perspective on our problems but we must beware of a godless contentment godless contentment will never last it only get you so far you can puff yourself up like a helium balloon and it'll it'll carry you for a little while but eventually all that self-reliance is going to seep out and you're going to come crashing back down to earth there's no amount of self-reliance and independence 
that can deal with every single thing that life can throw at us. Eventually, your contentment is going to be rocked. For example, no amount of optimism or like emotional self-control can change the fact that we are all going to die. Some people can act like that's no big deal, like, nope, I'm content, not worried about that at all. But you cannot find the bright side of death in the dark corners of a godless heart. It does not exist. There is no bright side. It's foolishness. Godless self-sufficiency is not enough. So you see what Paul is doing here is he's hijacking the philosopher's term. Paul does not mean self-sufficiency like they mean self-sufficiency. He's not suggesting to you and me that we need to rely on ourselves more. But he means that Christians need to make a self-conscious effort to find their sufficiency in Christ. That's what he wants us to do. So ironically, the self-sufficiency of a Christian isn't self-reliance at all. Christian contentment means continually throwing yourself on the sufficiency of Christ. And that's what Paul teaches elsewhere in Philippians chapter 4. Turn there if you would. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11. Philippians 4 verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Same Greek word, self-sufficient. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Interesting. He doesn't say I can do all things through myself, which is what self-sufficiency would mean. He says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So in good times and bad times, Paul is content in his circumstances not because of his own strength, but because he has Jesus. He looks inside and repeatedly thrusts himself onto Christ. No matter what he has or what he does not have, he has Jesus. Jesus is Paul's inner strength. He is enough. He is, he is enough during the worst times, and he is the sweetest part of the best times. What does Paul lack if he has Christ? He doesn't lack anything. What can be added to Christ that Paul would say, oh yeah, that's, that's some more gain? Nothing. Nothing. How could Paul not see Christ as his ultimate gain and as a thing which gives him true contentment? And think about it. At one point in his life, he had it all. He had it made. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, super intelligent. He was on a great career path. He was probably wealthy. And if he wasn't, he was definitely going to be wealthy. And he thought he had gain at the time. But in reality, he had nothing. He was in serious trouble. He was lost in sin and was, in fact, on track to be uh, under the wrath of God. It wasn't until Jesus literally knocked him off of his high horse that he realized how, how spiritually broke he was. But through repentance and faith, Jesus saved Paul. And now... He is incomparably rich in Christ. The same hope is held out to you, friends. You can find contentment, but you will only find it in Jesus. You must turn away from your sins. 
You must repent of them and trust in Christ, and you will be saved. And if you've done that, if you belong to Christ, and Christ is yours, what else could you possibly need? Truly, in Christ you also are incomparably rich. Salvation from wrath is yours. An inheritance like you cannot imagine is already yours. You've been saved from every bad thing, and you have gained every good thing in Christ. There is nothing else that God can offer you. Do you understand that? How much he has given you in Christ? We sing in one of our hymns. We say there is no more now for heaven to give. Jesus is enough for you and you're content in that and that's sufficient or he isn't. But there's nothing else coming from heaven than Christ. And if you have Christ, shouldn't this douse our pursuit of worldly riches? Shouldn't that change everything? Stop pursuing stuff. It won't make you happy. It's not going to be able to fill any of those gaps. It might give you a burst of happiness for a second, but it is so fleeting. And the risk is so severe. Won't we stop pursuing stuff? Stop being jealous of your neighbor. They don't have anything for you. (laughs) They can't help you or hurt you. What's ultimately going to matter is what's going to happen between you and God when you stand before him. Who cares if you catch up to your neighbor? There is no prize. And where do you go from there? Who's the next neighbor? Stop trusting in money. It will do nothing to save you from death. And it might even be the instrument by which you are led to your death. Stop living for retirement. You don't know when your life is going to be required of you. You don't know when your health is going to take that next turn for the worst. Blissful rest does not come with our old age. It comes with the consummation of a new birth, which we will certainly inherit in heaven. Until then, let's pick up our cross and follow Jesus every moment until the very end. Stop making the accumulation of wealth the goal of your life. I mean, look at verse 7. Look there. He says, you came into the world with nothing, and you're going to leave the world with nothing. All the wealth that you've accumulated is going to be left behind for somebody else to waste. And before long, all that wealth is going to be piled up in an oven and burned anyways. Why? Why make something as worthless as worldly treasure the goal of your life? Isn't it foolish to spend your whole life gaining something of little value that you cannot keep that is going to be burned up tomorrow? As the martyr Jim Elliot says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So I urge you, exchange the desire to be rich with godliness and contentment. It's a better trade. Won't we make the trade? Won't we learn to say with Paul, but if I have food and clothing, I'll be content. God knows what you need before you even ask it. None of it is too hard for him. He's going to take care of you. He provides for us all the time. He provides far more abundantly than we need all the time. You know that Jesus said God takes care of the birds. He takes care of the flowers. He doesn't even really care about them. He cares about you substantially more by comparison. He's going to take care of us. So if I have food and clothing, I'll be content. I'll be satisfied with that. 
The bare necessities are enough. But only if you have found that Christ is enough. You can only be satisfied with food and clothing when you have come to be satisfied in Jesus and found your contentment there. And I want to go a little further, right? Paul says we'll be satisfied as long as we have food and clothing, but that's not even actually what he means. That's a turn of phrase. He actually means it much more extreme than that. A Christian will still be satisfied in Christ even if he doesn't have food and clothing. Paul endured times of hunger and nakedness pretty often, and he was content. Many Christian martyrs have starved. Did God not uphold his word? No, he did. Jesus himself died naked. But these were content. They weren't content because they were poor. They were content because they were already rich in God. Nakedness will be clothed with a new glorified body and hunger will be satisfied at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's why they were content. So we'll be content with food and clothing and we're going to be content even without food and clothing. Brothers and sisters, this truth, it's simple. I'm not saying anything to us that we don't understand, but it eludes so many of us. It doesn't have to be true of you. You can avoid the temptation. You can avoid the snare. You can avoid the the, the spear that is going to pierce you. If you will pursue godliness with contentment in Christ, you will have gained something very special. You will have peace in this life and you will take a step towards unimaginable riches in heaven. We don't need something besides Jesus in order to be content. We do not need Jesus plus worldly riches. We already have the promise of eternal life plus everything that we need for life and godliness. Therefore, pursue godliness today and be content in Christ, and you will find that you have gained it all in the end. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of your word. We thank you for warning us about the desire of riches and providing for our every need in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would exalt him to be the highest treasure in our life. Let us fixate on him and be content and pursue you in obedience all the days of our life. We need your help to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.